Okay, well, good evening. It's good to see you. Thank you for coming. And uh, I almost put a jacket on tonight. It's a bit cooler. And I was really excited about that because it's been so, so hot. And the cooler weather is... I certainly uh, appreciate it. Um, anyway, uh, regardless of what the weather is, it's good to be here. Uh, the book of Job tonight, please. Let's take our Bibles open to the book of Job. And uh, let's see. We'll read a couple of verses from 38, 38 to begin with. Good to welcome our visitor here this evening as well. Job 38. We'll take the first four verses. Job 38, beginning verse 1. <clears throat> then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I'll demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Let's turn over to chapter 42. Verses 1 to 6. <clears throat> Job 42 from verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak, I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye seeth thee, wherefore I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. All right, let's pray and uh, ask God to bless our time in his word this evening. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the fact that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Uh, Old Testament beginning uh, the Genesis right through to the New Testament, concluding with the book of Revelation, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's all profitable. Uh, thank you for the, the wisdom literature uh, which, of which the book of Job is a part. And uh, thank you for the things which are revealed in this uh, portion of scripture. There's some historical things uh, but there's also uh, uh, deep truths, significant things which are being uh, debated and uh, revealed to us. And we pray that you might help us uh, just to discern the truth of the scriptures uh, concerning our subject matter for this evening. Thank you that in the scriptures you have revealed yourself to us. And uh, we pray that we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour uh, this evening. Uh, so teach us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's not, it's not easy to understand everything that God is doing. Uh, it's hard, for example, to understand many things that are happening in the world. Every week on the news we hear of some disaster, some natural disaster, some tragic accident, an armed conflict, acts of terror, brutal murders ethnic cleansing, religious persecution, somewhere in the world. It's often hard to make sense of global events. Nor is it easy to comprehend the things that God is doing in our own personal lives. Uh, prayer goes unanswered, or a longing remains unsatisfied. Relief never comes. Something precious is taken away. Something horrific lands in our lap. In your notes, it's hard to understand what on earth God is doing, either in the world at large or in our own private world. The word private there is the one that's missing. The, the poet William Cowper sometimes struggled to understand what God was doing in his life. He battled deep depression, and during one of his down times, 
he wrote a well-known hymn. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footstep in the sea and rides upon the storm. And Cowper borrowed this striking imagery from Psalm 77 verse 19, which says, Thy way is in the sea, and thy paths in the great waters, and thy footsteps are not known. Thy way is in the sea, thy path is in the great waters, and thy footsteps are not known. This is a biblical way of saying that God doesn't leave any tracks. He doesn't leave any footprints. He works in the world as though he's walking across the stormy seas. And if the only footprints he leaves are in the ocean, how can we know where he's been or where he's going or what he's doing? No, we don't understand all that God is doing, but we do know for sure that whatever God is doing, he is wise in it. Whatever God is doing is wise. God is all wise. We know this not from experience primarily, but because the Bible tells us that wisdom is one of the divine attributes. Job 36 verse 5 says, Behold, God is mighty. He is mighty in strength and wisdom. Romans 11.33 says that God's wisdom is unsearchable. It's not able to be searched out. It's beyond our ability to explore. So that's our first major heading to consider this evening. God's wisdom is unsearchable. God's wisdom is related to but different from his knowledge. God is infinite in knowledge, just like he's infinite in everything else. He is all-knowing, as we've learned over the course of the last few months. God is omniscient. 1 Samuel 2 verse 3 says, God is a God of knowledge. The Lord is a God of knowledge. Jeremiah 1 5 says that he knows us by name. Psalm 94 11 says that he knows the thoughts of a man. Psalm 44.21 says that he knows the secrets of the heart. Matthew 6.8 says that he knows what we need. God knows everything in the universe in precise details down to the ever-changing number of hairs on our head. Um, with me, that's more of a constant these days. But God knows God doesn't learn things, okay? He knows them from the very beginning. Isaiah 46.10 tells us that he knows the end from the beginning. God remembers everything in the past. He's familiar with everything that's happening in this moment. He's already aware of everything that will happen in the days to come. His exhaustive knowledge of past, present and future extends throughout the whole universe. In your notes, God knows all recorded facts. God knows all facts. All facts stored in all the computers and in all the books, in all the libraries, in all the world. Not only does God know all recorded facts, he knows every fact that is yet to be recorded, unrecorded facts. In addition to that, God knows all events, all that's happened on the earth and in the atmosphere, and in the farthest reaches of space, every star, every planet, every galaxy, at the macro level, God knows all events. And all events at the micro level. Everything that happens in molecules and atoms and electrons and protons and neutrons. He knows all of their movements, every location, every condition, every particle in the universe at any nanosecond of time. He knows every activity of human minds and wills, all volitional, emotional, spiritual activity, all thoughts and choices and feelings, past, present and future. God knows every fact, every event and every activity that has ever happened, is happening, will ever happen at every level of existence, physical, mental, volitional. 
And he knows how all these facts and events and activities all relate to each other and affect one another. He knows how one event happens and he sees the infinite chain of events that happen as a result of that. Not only does he know every fact, every event, every activity that is actual, he knows every fact, every event, every activity that is potential. Think of the number 345. How many possible mathematical questions have that, the answer 345? God knows every fact that is possible, every event that is possible, every activity that is possible. Anyone can count the number of seeds in one apple. God counts the number of apples in one seed. One theologian summarizes the knowledge of God by saying, quote, it's in your notes, God is omniscient. He knows everything, everything possible, everything actual, all events, all creatures of the past, the present and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth and in hell. And God knows all this without the slightest strain in his mind. That's what it means to be God. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing is forgotten by him. Well, may we say with the psalmist, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. The Bible speaks of God's infinite knowledge, but it also has a lot to say about God's wisdom. Wisdom is a kind of knowledge, only more practical. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. Wisdom is knowledge skillfully applied. And with God, it's skillfully applied omniscience. According to several theologians, wisdom involves, quote, choosing the best end and the best means for reaching that end. In other words, wisdom requires discernment. It requires judgment. Knowledge has facts, but it takes wisdom to know what to do with them. For example, I might know the difference between longitude and latitude, but it's a completely different thing for me to be able to take a map and a compass and to find my way out of the bush. Knowledge is the kind of thing they teach you at school, but wisdom is a skill that we learn through life experience. And yet for all the wisdom that we can accumulate, it's nothing compared to the wisdom of God. God's wisdom is so far above ours that God is described three times in Scripture as being the only wise God. None is wise compared to God. The Bible speaks of God's wisdom and gives three main examples. In creation, his wisdom in redemption, his wisdom in providence. God is wise in the way that he made the world, that's creation. He's wise in the way that he saves people, that's redemption. He's wise in the way that he works in people's lives, in human experience, that's providence. So let's just note them one at a time. God's wisdom is displayed, first of all, in creation. There is wisdom in the way that God has made the earth and the sky and the seas. Jeremiah 10 verse 12 says, he hath made the earth by his power, he hath established the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his discretion. Proverbs 3.19 says, The Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth, by understanding he hath established the heavens. There's wisdom too in the way that God has made the animals. Psalm 104, after praising the beasts of the field and birds of the air, the psalmist exclaims, O Lord, how manifold are thy works! In wisdom hast thou made them all, the earth is full of thy riches. And in the words of that famous children's hymn by Cecil Alexander, all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. And the wise and wonderful things that we see in the creation are evidence of God's infinite wisdom. The cause is always so much greater than the effect. God's wisdom is also displayed in the redemption of lost sinners. 
And he chooses to do it through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in this we see the wisdom of God. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded towards us in all wisdom and prudence. In this redemption that God provides us through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see in that the riches of God's grace, but we also see the abundance of God's wisdom. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. A number of verses there to say that the, the, the gospel is, is the wisdom of God. That God would save people through this means. It's his very, very wise. It's the genius of God. The book of Romans, the whole book of Romans, is an expo exposition of the gospel. First couple of chapters here, how all of us are sinners and what God does to justify us and then to sanctify us. And then he will eventually glorify us. And chapters 9, 10... And 11, it's all about the Jewish people, how they are also saved the same way. And then at the end of chapter 11, Paul contemplates this marvellous plan, God's marvellous plan of redemption. And this is what he says as he contemplates God's redemptive plan. He says, oh, the depth of both the, the riches and both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, his ways past finding out. Who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counsellor? God's wisdom is unsearchable. We know that God is wise. We see his wisdom in creation as we look at the world. We, we, we note his wisdom in redemption as we read this, the gospel message in the scriptures. But we do have a, a problem which lies at the, a personal level. The problem is when we look at the various providences that befall us or misfortunes, we often call them. When it comes to some circumstances, when it comes to certain providences that God allows in our lives, we sometimes begin to wonder whether God is very wise at all. There seems to, there's often a gap between our theology and our reality. Especially when it comes to the point of, about suffering. But thankfully there is a story in the Bible that helps us to understand God's wisdom in providences. God's wisdom that overrules sufferings. And that's the story of Job. So our second major heading for this evening is the sufferings of Job were inexplicable. The sufferings of Job were inexplicable. Job was the wealthiest and most famous man in the Middle East at that time. Perhaps more significant than that was the fact that Job was one of God's favourite people. He was so godly that God himself used Job as an example of a righteous man? Hast thou considered my servant Job? God asks. There's none like him in all the earth. A perfect man, upright, one that feareth God, eschews, hates evil. No one like Job. And yet probably no one suffered like Job in the providence of God. Job experienced untold calamity. In just a few moments, he lost all of his oxen, all of his donkeys, all of his sheep, all of his camel. That's, that is all of his assets gone. He lost all of his servants, all of his staff killed. All of his sons and daughters killed when their house is hit by a cyclone. His own body afflicted with painful boils from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. And after this onslaught, Job says, tore his robe, he shaved his head, he sat down in the ashes, scraped his skin with a piece of pottery. This man went from the top of the world to the top of the rubbish heap in just a few hours. And apart from his wife, all that Job had left in the world was a few friends. 
at first they were very sympathetic to his plight. As soon as they heard what happened to Job, they left their homes, they came looking for him, and when they found him, they could hardly recognize him. He was so disfigured from all of his sufferings. But because they loved the man, they wept aloud, they tore their robes, they sprinkled dust on their heads. Chapter 2, verse 13 tells us, they sat down upon the ground seven days, seven nights. None of them spoke a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Job had some good friends, the kind that come in when the world goes out. Unfortunately, eventually they found their tongues. And when they did, what they had to say was not very comforting. According to chapter 15, verse 18, they wanted to explain to Job, quote, what wise men have declared, which was exactly the problem. In your notes, they offered the conventional wisdom of the day rather than God's wisdom. The enlightened view at that time was if a person was suffering, then it was the result of his or her own sin. If Job was suffering, well, then it's obvious God is chastening him for his sins. Simple as that. Job's trials were Job's fault. All he needed to do was confess his sins, repent, and everything would be fine. In your notes, the counsel that Job received was clear. It was practical. It was the accepted view of enlightened men, and it was completely wrong. Now, although Job didn't understand all that God was up to, there was one thing about God of which Job was convinced. He did know that God was wise. He accepted that wisdom was one of the divine attributes. He tells us that several times in the book of Job. For example, Job chapter 12, verse 13. Job says, with him is wisdom and strength. He hath counsel and understanding. The wisdom of God was a fact that Job was convinced of. Job had seen God's wisdom in creation. Job said, chapter 9, verse 4, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. And then he goes on to account, uh, record or to recount, sorry, God's wisdom in creation. Verse 6, He shaketh the earth out of her place, the pillars thereof tremble. He, make, he commandeth the sun, and it riseth, and sealeth up the stars. Verse 8, He alone spreadeth out the heavens, and treadeth upon the waves of the sea. It is the wise heart of God who has done all these things. Job knew it. He testified concerning God's wisdom in creation. But he also knew that God was wise in redemption. He also knew God was wise in redemption. Job 19, verses 25 to 27, he says, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroyed this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Job knew something of God's great and wise plan of redemption. Now, even in his grief and suffering, Job remained absolutely convinced that with God is wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. And this is why God approves of Job's theology at the end of the book by telling Job's friends. He says, you have not spoken of me, the thing that is right, as my servant Job has. Chapter 42, verse 7. Job knew that God was all wise and he knew that God had all the answers. Yet in the middle of the book, we see that Job starts to confront God. He wants to sit God down and get some answers from him. Chapter 23, verse 3. Oh, that I knew where I might find him that I might come even to his seat. Verse 4, I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Verse 5, I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me. And this was the hardest thing for Job. For Job. God was giving him no answer, no answers at all. He wants God to speak to him, to, to tell him what's going on and why it's going on, but God's giving him no answer. 
That was the hardest thing for Job. He loses everything. He bows down and worship. That's his response. But then his friends come along and tell him, Job, all these things are happening to you because you've done the wrong thing. And God is not coming to Job's defense. God is not answering him. You know, we sometimes might find ourselves in a similar position when we encounter trials and hardships. We pray for them to go away. Sometimes they don't go away. And uh, we, we want to know why they're not going away, but there's no answer. And uh, sometimes people say bad things about us and we wish that God would defend us, come to our defence, and there's no answer. We don't then cease to believe in God's existence or renounce our commitment to him. We still believe that with God there is wisdom. But we do want to sit God down and get some answers. Sometimes we demand answers. C.S. Lewis described this attitude in his famous essay called God in the Dock. That's the place where the accused person sits in court. That's exactly where modern man puts God. Lewis put it this way. The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge for modern man the role is reverse god a man is the judge god is in the dock man is quite a kindly judge if god should have a reasonable defense for being the god who permits war and poverty and disease man is ready to listen to it the trial may even end in god's acquittal But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Thus, human beings claim the right to interrogate God and sit in judgment over him. We demand that God explain himself. When Hurricane Katrina hit Louisiana and particularly New Orleans, I think it was back in 2005, because it was all over the news and there were spokes spokesmen people addressing the media and i'm not sure who it was whether it was a governor or certainly some important official said god has got a lot of explaining to do it's not until we get to chapter 38 that the lord eventually did speak if you're not already thereabouts please turn to chapter 38 job 38 Job did eventually get his day in court, although it didn't really turn out the way he expected. For one thing, the meeting with God didn't take place in a courtroom at all. The Lord spoke to Job. That's the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That's Jehovah. The same Jehovah who spoke to Moses out of a burning bush spoke to Job out of a whirlwind. For the other thing... God never answered any of Job's questions. Now, the Bible says, of course, that the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. But what kind of answer did he give? If you look closely, you notice that God's answer began with a question. Chapter 38, verse 2. Who is this? that darkeneth counsels by words without knowledge. Who is, who is this unenlightened person who doesn't know what he's talking about, who speaks and just brings confusion? Who's asking these questions? There's a way of God's way of telling Job, don't ask that question. God then proceeds to ask Job question after question after question after question. Add them up. I think there's 84 questions that fill virtually four whole chapters. And apart from the giving of the law, this is God's longest speech in the entire Bible. Which I, which I think you'll find is significant. 
There are questions here that stagger the mind and amaze the intellect. Chapter 38, verse 4. Where was thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Verse 8. Or who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth, as if it had issued out of the womb? Verse 11. And he said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further, and here shall thy proud waves be stayed. Who says that? Verse 12, hast thou commanded the morning since thy days and caused the day spring to know his place, caused the dawn to know its place? Verse 22, hast thou entered into the treasure of the snow or hast thou seen the treasures of the hail? Verse 31, canst thou bind the sweet influences of Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Canst thou bring forth Marazoth in his season? Or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons? These are all stars, constellations. Verse, chapter 39, verse 19. Hast thou given the horse strength? Hast thou clothed his neck with thunder? Verse 26. Doth the hawk fly by thy wisdom and stretch out her wings towards the south? Searching questions. And by posing them, God is reminding Job of the wisdom of his creation. And if only God is so wise. The issue then is what right, what right does Job had to question God's judgment? Chapter 40, verse 2. Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Chapter 40, verse 8. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Hast thou an arm like God? Or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? Deck thyself now with majesty and excellency. Array thyself with glory and beauty. Verse 14. Then will I also confess unto thee that thine own right hand can save thee. Then you can be the master of your fate, the captain of your soul. When you put on majesty and excellency and glory Back to verses 4 and 5, chapter 40, verses 4 and 5. Job knew that there was nothing that he could say to all of that, and so he doesn't even try. Verse 4, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I'll lay my hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer yet twice, but I'll proceed no further. God put Job back in the dock where he belonged. The dock is where human beings always belong and it's God's right to question us. As one author explains in your notes, we think that God is an object about which we have questions. We're curious about God. We've made inquiries about God. We read books about God. We get into late night bull sessions about God. We drop into church from time to time to see what is going on with God. We indulge in an occasional sunset or symphony to cultivate a feeling of reverence for God. But that is not the reality of our lives with God. Long before we ever got around to asking questions about God, God has been questioning us. Questions like he asked back in Genesis 3. Where art thou? What hast thou done? If anyone's going to be asking the questions, it's going to be the God who, who knows all the answers. And by interrogating Job, God reclaimed the right to do the asking. What do we learn about trials and tribulations and inexplicable suffering from God's questions? 
third major heading, we learn that the ways of God are incomprehensible. The ways of God are incomprehensible. God himself said through Isaiah, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And Edward Young, in his commentary on Isaiah, concerning these two verses, this is what he says, is there in your note, the implication is that just as the heavens are so high above the earth that by human standards their height cannot be measured, so also are God's ways and thoughts so above those of man that they cannot be grasped by man in their fullness. In other words, the ways and thoughts of God are incomprehensible to man. Therefore, we should never expect God to give us all the answers. We should not expect God to give us all the answers. It's not in your notes. <clears throat> But Jerry Bridges points out that there are 16 questions why, or the, words, the word why occurs 16 times in the book of Job. 16 times Job asks God why, and God never answers one of the why questions. Instead of answering why, God shows who. God shows Job who. He is. Now, to be sure, God could have explained himself to Job. God could have explained why he was allowing Job to suffer bereavement and loss and poverty and grief and illness. But then God would have been giving Job the right to question his judgment. It's not the way the universe works. We do not sit in judgment over God. He sits in judgment over us. And there are times when he keeps his wisdom and counsel to himself. Even sound biblical theology from the totality of scripture does not give us all the answers. It reveals the character of God. It reveals the origin of the earth. It reveals God's plan of salvation, but it does not explain what God is doing in a particular life at a particular moment. We don't know the intimate details of God's specific plan for every individual. Those things are not recorded in Scripture, nor are they revealed by revelation. God doesn't have to explain those things to us. God's purposes for us, God's plans for us, Specific details are known only to him. And Job is a good example of that. The opening chapters of Job show us that it wasn't God who caused Job's suffering. Now, revealed to us wasn't revealed to Job. God kept that from Job. Never, never, we don't know that Job ever found that out in his life. God has revealed that much to us, but there's so many other things God hasn't revealed to to us, Satan was the one who came and tormented Job. We can see that God allowed that in order to gain a victory over Satan, but God didn't cause it. God, and Job wasn't suffering because he needed to be punished, like his three friends said. It's because through all of this, God would be glorified and Job would be refined and his life would be blessed abundantly, more so at the latter end. Those details are revealed in the Bible after the event. But we don't know that if Job ever understood any of that, at least in his life. Never learned that suffering was because he was, was part of God's favour. Never worked out that he suffered because, not because he was unrighteous, but because he was, he was righteous. God knew all of the answers, but he kept them from Job. God knows the answer to all of our questions and he keeps them to himself. And yet some general things are revealed in the scripture. God is merciful and gracious. He revealed some things, some answers are provided. For example, in Genesis 3. 
Ultimately, we know that all hardship and all sorrow and all death is the result of the curse which is upon the earth because of human sin. God's revealed that much to us. And God has also revealed that there's other reasons why God may allow his children to suffer in any particular circumstance. For example, Philippians 3, 10 and 11 tell us that sometimes Christians suffer in order to know the sufferings of Christ. Suffering is part of what it means to be united with Christ. Furthermore, in Hebrews 12, verses 7 and 8, sometimes Christians suffer to give a specific testimony to the world. It'll be tra trained in righteousness. Or in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, we are told that some lessons are learned only through suffering. And through this means, Christians are sanctified and, and prepared for glory. Christian may suffer for any of those reasons or all of those reasons or for other non-revealed reasons or unrevealed reasons. Don't expect God to explain himself to you. Often it is part of God's wisdom not to explain himself. It would be unwise to do so. In his book, Knowing God, J.R. Packer says, the truth is that God, in his wisdom, to make and to keep us humble and to teach us to walk by faith, has hidden from us almost everything that we should like to know about the providential purposes which he is working out in the churches and in our own lives. God keeps many things hidden from us. In the meantime, what we can do is to trust in the wisdom of God, to know that God is all-wise and God knows what he's doing. So fourthly and finally, the Christian's faith is essential. The wisdom of God is unsearchable. The ways of God are incomprehensible. The Christian's faith, therefore, is essential. You see, the story of Job teaches us that we, we can live without all the answers. We can live without all the answers. At first, Job thought that he couldn't live without all the answers. And that's why he was plunged into the depths of despair. He said, you know, God, unless I get some answers, I just can't go on. But in a very, very powerful way, God showed, showed Job that was not true. In all of the questions, God started listing all things that Job accepted, even though he couldn't explain them. The stars in the heaven, the, the waves on the seashore, the light at dawn, the cycle, the water cycle in the desert. The universe is full of things that we cannot control, cannot explain. We accept them simply as a matter of course. We don't demand that God explain how he does all of those things or even why he does all of those things. By faith, we just accept it. We go on. Why should, not we, why should we have a different... Why shouldn't we have the same attitude towards the, up, attitude towards the ups and downs of life? So many things God doesn't explain. We don't worry about that. We just get on with life. We trust him to take care of all that. The same with the ups and downs of life. Living without all the answers is part of it, what it means to be a finite human being. And at the end of all of his trials, after he had some further... Knowledge and understanding, revelation of who God is, who this God is. Job then decides, answers or no, he's going to humble himself and keep on trusting. This is what he says to God, chapter 42, verse 2. I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Uh, <clears throat> that'd be me. Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me which I knew not. You say, Here I beseech thee, and I will speak, I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. 
Yes, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself, I repent in dust and ashes. I make no more demands. I require no more answers. I was wrong to insist. We see a similar response by David in Psalm 131. I think it's verse 1. Lord, my heart is not haughty, mine eyes not lofty, neither do I exercise myself in great matters or things too high for me. Humility will leave those things to God. And so for Job, the argument is over. Finally stop demanding answers, not because he was able to prove God wrong or, or even because he finally understood you know, why bad things happen to good people. No, he stopped asking questions because he decided to trust God's wisdom. He'd always believed that God was wise. But now he understood what it meant to entrust his life to that wisdom. And Job's faith is an example for everyone who's still looking for some answers. In your notes, if God has enough wisdom to manage the boundaries of the sea and the motions of the heavens and the instincts of animals, he has more than enough wisdom to run your life. Thomas Boston said, To this wise God may we safely entrust, or sorry, we may safely entrust all of our concerns knowing that he will manage them all so as to promote not only his own glory, but also and at the same time our real good. God's wisdom means that he chooses the best means to the best end. He has wisdom to know what that is. He has wisdom to know how to get there. We leave that in his hands. God knows all the answers. The fact that God doesn't always give us, doesn't give us all the answers doesn't mean that there aren't any. The Bible says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are to be are hidden in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. And Job himself was looking forward to the day when he would meet God's wisdom incarnate. He said, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. The name of that Redeemer, Job didn't know it at the time, but the name of his Redeemer is Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came to earth as the incarnate wisdom of God, he did not give us philosophical answers to the question of suffering. Instead, what did he do? He entered into our suffering, even to the point of death. And by dying on the cross, he provided the ultimate solution to the problem of human suffering. What is it? First of all, initially, forgiveness and justification and then sanctification and then glorification. The answer is not in death, it's in resurrection. It's not all here. Okay, It's not all here. Romans 8 says this creation, this world is subject to vanity. God's made it that way so that we don't look for salvation and fulfillment here. We look for it somewhere else. We look for it in Jesus Christ. We look for it in glory. On the cross, Jesus paid for our sins that caused suffering in the first place. And one day soon, by virtue of his death and resurrection, Jesus will bring all of our sufferings to an end. Revelation 21.4, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither there shall be any more pain, for the former things have passed away that time has not yet come. We still live in Job's house. And God in his infinite wisdom is allowing us to suffer a little while longer. In the meantime, we must trust that the only wise God knows what he's doing. Spurgeon said, God is too good to be unkind, too wise to be mistaken. And when you cannot trace his hand... You can always trust his heart. One day we will see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. 
then faith will give way to sight. But in the meantime, we walk by faith. The just shall live by faith. Faith in a sovereign God, we saw last Wednesday night. Sovereign God who is all wise. As we began tonight, we quoted the first verse from Cowper's hymn. I think it's appropriate to end with the words of the hymn in total. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footstep in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. What a profound truth in that wonderful hymn. That's a good place to close. Let's, let's uh, conclude in prayer. <clears throat> Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, there in that hymn, um, we see that uh, one of the reasons you allow, uh, we see one of the reasons why you allow such suffering is to teach such remarkable truths concerning yourself and your ways. Uh, Cowper himself went through uh, deep struggles, deep sufferings. And uh, Lord, these are the things that you revealed to him. And uh, Lord, in that hymn, he encourages us to remain people of faith, uh, to keep our eyes fixedly firm, uh, our eyes fixed firmly upon you, uh, the author and the finisher of our faith. Uh, Lord, not to judge you by our feeble senses, we are sure to err and get it wrong. Uh, Lord, help us to be spiritually minded people who are willing to trust your wisdom and continue to walk by faith. We thank you that you are uh, all wise and we thank you that we can trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.